tonight to tell you the truth, because I've been following up something, and the most of you will remember the report which we gave you last week about four teenagers in Greenhead, Indiana, who said that they were buzzed by flying saucers. Now, that story interested me very much, and, uh, and after going over the thing, I decided that it would stand a little bit of checking. For one thing, I didn't uh, exactly believe all of it, so I must have been now that I believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it. I mean, off Route 3, and we've been on every single... Side road, dirt road, dead end. And there's no road, there's no no clearing, nothing. Of course there is, we just haven't found it yet. I saw the thing, I knew I saw the thing, but if my best friend told me he'd seen it, I'd say he was crazy. Benny, there have been UFO sightings all over New Hampshire. Are you saying they're all nuts, all those people? Maybe, yeah, maybe. And it's crazy to keep coming back here. It's like a compulsion, like some of those people you deal with at work. Compulsive gamblers, compulsive wife beaters. What does that make us, compulsive travelers? What's so bad about that? Because we only travel to Indian Head. We only travel Route 3, looking for a road that doesn't exist. How many times have we been back here, Betty? Seven, eight times. You always end up exhausted and fighting each other. I don't want to fight with you, Betty. Let's not come back. Let's just decide not to come back again. Ever. But, but we will, you know. Well, you know. I saw the moon sitting on the ground. That was a dream, Betty. The men in the road, I saw them in the road. And then I saw the moon sitting on Dreams are dreams and reality is reality. We almost smashed up this car because you had a dream. Don't do that, Barney. Please. Don't shut me out. Talk to me. Tell me what you feel. I feel that your dreams are dreams and that reality. Hello and welcome to the season four premiere of the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, my friends, tonight we kick off the start of Season 4 of the Paranormal Sun. Long-time listeners will know what this means. It's time for another top-tier UFO case. This one may be the most controversial of all. Most people in the field are firmly entrenched on one side of the hill or the other. Pardon the pun. Either it's all made up in pseudoscience hogwash, or it's the gospel truth. Their alleged encounter with extraterrestrial beings in September of 1961 was the first documented instance of a purported alien abduction, which profoundly changed the course of ufology and how it was perceived by the public. Basically, the Hill case coined the alien gray and alien abduction tropes for better or for worse. Betty and Barney were not the first to tell of an alien encounter but their account was the first to capture the public imagination on a grand scale, defining a narrative subgenre that has flourished in the decades since. The account was the subject of a book by John G. Fuller, The Interrupted Journey. 
Two Lost Hours Aboard a Flying Saucer, from 1966. In 1975, it became a television movie, The UFO Incident. The film starred Estelle Parsons as Mrs. Hill and James Earl Jones as her husband, Barney, who also said he was abducted. Stanton Freeman wrote a book on it, and as you can imagine, all the luminaries, and even more of the dim bulbs interested in the subject, have added their own thoughts over the years, from Heineck and Valet to the debunker king Philip J. Class, and hundreds more. Join me tonight as we start Season 4 with a bang. No, actually, more fitting for this case, a supernova, as you can't get bigger or more controversial than the events on that September night 60 years ago, on a return trip that would shape their lives and ufology from that day forward. Well, hello everyone. I hope that you're doing well wherever you are. And finally, here we are kicking off Season 4 as we're in the great month of October, the month that most people think of as the spooky season, the month that Halloween is obviously in, and so many people enjoy more and more as the years go by. It's become a real month-long phenomenon, more than just the day of Halloween or a few days before. And in the world the way it is right now, I can understand why people need those distractions and really feel joy in it. I mean, there are people that celebrate Christmas for the whole month of December, so why not celebrate Halloween for the whole month of October if that's your thing? By all means, we should do what we enjoy in this life. It's short. As long as we don't harm others, who the heck cares? So folks, a few real quick show notes I've got for you. The first one is that this is going to be a chock-full month, so we're just now getting around to the start of Season 4. But in this month, I'm still going to find a way to shoehorn in four episodes for you for this month, normal episodes. Then I've got my eyes on a couple of bonus episodes I'd like to get done for you as well. So it is going to be a very busy month. Keep your eyes on the podcast as you see more and more stuff come out. One other real quick note that I just wanted to make that I had made during the season 3.5, one of the episodes. So I always have a bit of fun, folks. And when we're between season 3 and 4, I'll call it season 3.5. And I did it between 2 and 3 as well. But in that time, I singled out a listener who's been really helpful, and they have been. And so Trey in Oregon, in Portland, I just wanted to once again reiterate, Trey is now the chapter president and the field correspondent for the Paranormal Sun in Portland. Thanks so much, Trey, for sending me those articles, man. I really appreciate it. And I've got several of Trey's articles tonight to read for you folks as we kick off this season premiere. So aside from that, my friends, what have we got planned? Well, we're definitely going to have that Halloween special. So if any of the listeners out there have got any Halloween stories you'd like me to read on air or share, so any of your own encounters or maybe friends or loved ones or just ones you've heard, send them through. You can email them through or anything you want to, really. You can send through to me at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. So just the paranormal sun, all one word, no show, no nothing like that. Just the paranormal sun at gmail.com. And I'm happy to read it on air. I'm happy to say your name if you want. If you want it to be anonymous, just tell me. Can you just keep it to yourself or can you just call me Bob or whatever you want, folks? I'm happy to do. Uh, But even if I don't get anyone writing through, I know everyone's life is busy. If I don't get anyone writing through, that's fine. I've I've got stories, and we'll definitely have a good Halloween spooktacular, the second annual one for the Paranormal Sun. 
And folks, the show just continues to grow all over the world. I've recently had listeners from Zimbabwe and Algeria, so welcome aboard and thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the program. Had a lot of listeners lately in Germany, and so to all of my German listeners, danke. I'm uh, I'm a quarter German myself, so my German isn't very good, but uh, I am appreciative that you take the time to listen, and everyone all over the world that takes the time to listen to the program. And again, to the folks who were worried about me that sent me the well wishes while I was ill, thank you. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I am feeling better now. I had a few niggles yesterday. So again, niggles, for those of you who aren't from my neck of the woods here, niggles are just when you've got kind of got ongoing sores or injuries, maybe things that you've had your whole life and haven't quite healed up. And in this case, it's uh, it's arthritis and a bit of uh, neck muscle pain. So made yesterday a bit of fun to handle, but I, I, I had a I had a muscle relaxer and, and got some sleep, so now I'm ready to record this very first episode of Season 4, and I'm super excited about it. I don't know if it comes across on the mic, but I can tell you folks I'm really excited to be here and for us to get going into Season 4. Now, when we get into this topic about Betty and Barney Hill, I've sampled liberally from a couple of sources. Uh, there are some samples you'll hear throughout the clip uh, from the impeccable James Earl Jones, and that is from that movie, Interrupted Journey. And I've got quite a bit of stuff out of that book as well. So I just want to make sure that I mention it up front here, that uh, that the Interrupted Journey book from John G. Fuller, I wouldn't have been able to get the kind of detail that I have without the help of that book. So uh, thank you so much to the author. I don't know if he's still around, but um, it's always been a story that's just fascinated me. Now, this is going to be a multiple part episode because this is just too big to shoehorn into one episode, even if we went two hours. So it's going to be at least two parts, maybe three. Who knows? So we'll just see. We'll get into it uh, after we do the news of the damned and we'll go from there. So, like I say, I do still have people ask me, hey, JT. How can we support the program? How can we support you and the Paranormal Sun? Well, the best way is to tell someone else that you think may enjoy the program. I mean, I do my very best to try and meet listener submissions. When you ask questions, if you want me to cover over certain articles, if there's topics that you want me to cover over, I know I can't always be super nimble to just move things around quickly and get on that topic straight away, but I am more than happy and I do try to be responsive to listeners and try and get things on the air. You know, over over the last year and a half or whatever it is, um, yeah, coming up on a year and a half, I guess, that I've been doing the program. I've had a few people get a hold of me, guests and such, that I've just, we've not been able to make things meet or sync up. So again, if I ever forget about something that I've told you all do, just get in touch with me. Just gently nudge me because I'm human. I forget about things. And, um, yeah, I'm not that millionaire. I'm not, uh, I haven't found that Russian oligarch yet to, uh, to back the show and pay me a living wage out of it. So I've got, um, I've got issues on my mind too. And, uh, paying the bills is always one of them. And, uh, it can, it can get a bit stressful at times, folks, to worry about, uh, where you're going to pay this or that. And again, that's not necessarily your problem, but all I'm saying is that I'm as forgetful as the next person. We all go through that, and if I do forget anything, please never take it as a personal or an amiss. Uh, just get in touch with me and say, hey, uh, JT, you were going to cover this 
blah 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 months ago or whatever it was can can you uh can you give us an update and I'll be happy to so aside from that as I always say too you can go in the show notes of any of the podcast episodes and at the very beginning of the show notes up the top there's a couple of links They're, they both go to the same place but one says you can follow and support the program here you can click that hyperlink or the one directly below it and either one of those will take you to a landing page basically that's got everything that you would want the Facebook group, the Instagram page, all of that you can follow, you can support. You can also find a link there to uh, PayPal through the website, which is uh, www.theparanormalsun.com. If you would like to contribute to what I do, if you find value in it and you want to kick a few dollars into the bucket, that's one of the best ways to do it. Again, Patreon is something that I've got to get around to just setting up properly. And again, folks, um, Let's see. It's not that I don't want to offer the additional content and everything else. It's just been getting it done. I, I haven't found it as the top-notch priority. I mean, I, I think that you folks can see where the priorities in this program are, and it's not wringing every dollar out of every listener. I mean, the priorities for me are to try and get out content for you as best as I can, cover interesting things, and respond to you when I can. I mean, I've been really amiss about promoting the program on social media, so I do appreciate each and every one of you who suggests the program to others. I know I can tell from some of the listenership in certain areas that you've been telling other people because I know listeners, for example, in North Carolina have told people in North Carolina, and then I can see it kind of grow there. And same in Oregon and the same in California. So all of you who take the time to suggest the program, look, I, I really do appreciate it. It is a labor of love. It's something that I love doing. And I appreciate each and every one of your uh, love and uh, respect and kind words that you have for me in the program. You can, of course, go and support the program as well by going and following it, subscribing, so to speak, on whatever podcast network you may use. You can also rate it on the ones that allow rating. I know not everyone does, but anything you do, folks, at the end of the day, I am really appreciative from the bottom of my heart. And I do thank you very, very much. Now, I do have one other note for you. I just need one second here, and then future JT will be right back to tell you all about it. Okay, so here I am, folks, future JT. And uh, what I wanted to say was that, as I've talked about several times on the program, I continue to hold the door open for mental health and mental well-being and anything that impacts that, because although I've not kept up with the fortunate son and I've tried to revamp it a bit but I've just struggled to kind of get timely guests and I've just been juggling too much myself to be honest um, but I continue to appear on other programs when I'm asked now I was asked a few months ago to be on a program called the beautiful side of grief so if you want to hear me talk about uh, loss if you want me to if you want to hear me talk about um, the loss of someone very close to me from a distance, if that's the kind of thing that interests you, and or if there's anything in that kind of mind space of grief and some of the things that people deal with, then this program called The Beautiful Side of Grief is uh, excellent, and the host is really good, very kind person, and I really uh, appreciated being on that program. Now, it's episode 29, and it says uh, it's called Grief from a Distance. Now, I will have links eventually in the uh, social media. I just haven't gotten around to posting it, to be brutally honest, folks. But I will be sometime over this weekend. 
So we'll see when this episode actually comes out, the episode I'm recording right now, the season one, uh, or sorry, season four premiere. I'd like to have this out today, but we will just see. But anyway, uh, if you want to check that out, it's called, like I say, the podcast is called The Beautiful Side of Grief, and it's episode 29, Grief from a Distance. So if you want to listen to that, you can check it out there. Okay, so folks, uh, that about wraps up everything ahead of getting into the news of the damned. One other thing, I guess, is, like I say, I've just got a lot planned for this season. So we're going to do our best to get through it as quickly as we can. And the way it's looking, let's see, I'm just looking right now at the calendar. Yeah, we'll we'll be about three quarters of the way through the season at Christmas time. So we won't be quite finished. And, uh, you know, with season four and moving into a break, but we'll see. I'll, I'll have a break around Christmas, but that's a long way off yet. I just don't know quite how long at this point. So aside from that, really, um, that's the other thing. The last couple of days have been a lot of pain for me in the sporting world. And for those of you who don't care about sports, um, I can understand why you might go, well, who cares? But uh, yeah, the Cardinals game, they played well, uh, but unfortunately, uh, we ended up losing 3-1. to one. And uh, I mean, it was just one of those games where if we would have scored another run in the first inning when we had the chance, I think we would have had a really good chance to win that game. But unfortunately, we didn't. And a lot of people have blamed one player, which is the pitcher who gave up the home run that lost the game. But the reality is our hitters went 0 for 11 with runners on base or in scoring position. So you can't point the finger all at that pitcher. And on top of that, if the coach wanted to put this guy in, he wouldn't have given up the home run. So it's just like if your boss asks you to do a job and you do your best, but you fail, it's as much your boss's fault if they know you're not prepared or they know you may not be up to that challenge, let's say. And then today, uh, watch the Seahawks game. Well, I should say yesterday now. Watch the Seahawks game and uh, thought we might mount a bit of a comeback. And then, of course, they fell on their face. So I think it's going to be uh, quite a long season for sport this year for me. And uh, I might not be watching much sport for a while and might have more time to spend on the program. So I guess that's a good thing. So, folks, all right. With all that being said, and uh, again, thanks for listening. I just need to to rant a bit about the sport. It has been quite depressing for me as a fan. And uh, now, especially with baseball, now all I can do is watch other teams in the playoffs and think of what could have been with our team. But now it's time to move on to the news of the damned. And for those of you who don't know what the news of the damned is, there's a gentleman from the early 1900s, and his name was Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was interested in all of these things that we quite enjoy. The paranormal, the unexplained, UFOs, missing people, strange lights in the sky, sea serpents, and other cryptids, you name it. Well, Mr. Fort gathered 30 or 40,000 handwritten notes from periodicals and magazines from all over the world. And, in fact, he gathered them twice. He gathered them all together, um, I think it was about 50,000, and destroyed them and then started over. So, I mean, the, the, the man really had a passion for it. Well, anyway, Charles Fort referred to anything that was excluded or ignored by science. In other words, this doesn't make sense or this doesn't fit our preconceived narrative, so we're just going to ignore it. 
Now, anything like that, Charles Fort referred to as damn data. Therefore, every time we do a news segment on the paranormal sun, it is known as the news of the damned. Alright folks, so we've got a good gathering of articles here for this week's News of the Damned. Now the first one's from Trey in Oregon, so thank you Trey for sending this one through. And this is from unexplainedmysteries.com, and this is titled Real Life Angry Birds Attack Delivery Drones. And this is from the 28th of September, and let's see, it doesn't say who it was written by, but maybe at the end. And as always, folks, if you want to read any of these articles, if you want to go and follow the links, you can always find them in the show notes. So it says, Ravens seem to have developed a severe dislike of delivery drones in the skies over Canberra, Australia. So for those of you who don't know, Canberra is the, uh, it's in the ACT, which is the Australian Capital Territory, um, like in the U.S., you wouldn't want New York or Chicago being the capital. Even here in New Zealand, our biggest city where I live is not the capital. So it's the same in Aussie. Uh, and that's kind of the idea. It's more centralized and it's also not one of the biggest cities on the coast. So it says here, um, the idea of delivering parcels to recipients via autonomous aerial drones seem to have been gaining more and more traction in recent years, opening the door to a future in which items we order online could be deposited in our gardens mere hours after clicking Confirm Purchase on the website. In Canberra, however, an increase in delivery drone use has met with some unexpected opposition in the form of ravens, which have started attacking the flying machines on site. One customer, Ben Roberts, has been acutely aware of the problem after going outside to await the delivery of his morning coffee via drone each day. It's a matter of time before they bring one down, he said. The bird attacks have become so common in the area that the drone company has been forced to pause flights until a solution to the problem can be found. And they've got some photos here, and there's actually a video of this raven attacking uh, the drone. Uh, I, I was just having a chuckle because I didn't realize you could get your coffee delivered by drone. Uh, pretty handy. Uh, okay. It is assumed that the ravens must be perceiving the drones as some sort of territorial threat. Well, that's what you would think. According to Wayne Condon, chief pilot and instructor with UAV Training Australia, it is best to avoid flying drones near bird nesting sites and to fly them early in the morning to avoid the attacks. He also suggests backing the drones away from the birds if an attack does occur. However, given that the drones are autonomous, this is certainly not an ideal solution. Yeah, there's no one watching them. You don't see this happening. We have identified some ravens demonstrating territorial behavior in a small part of our delivery area, in the suburb of Harrison, and we've asked local ornithological experts to investigate this further to ensure we continue to have minimal impact on bird life, said a drone company spokesperson. Service will be temporarily paused for a small number of our customers in Harrison during this time. So I'm just going to click on this video here really quick because this is something I try to do. Let's give you a bit of a live reaction when I can. It's only 41 seconds. And it shows the drone overhead. And you can hear the ravens cawing in the background. See the drone coming down. So, yeah, and it 
there's the the raven is attacking it and it's struggling it's um it's it, so it it's not swooping it's actually grabbed on the drone on the back and it's pecking at it and kind of uh trying to get it to follow and now the drone's just dropping down its um its little parcel there and uh the raven is circling it so uh for those of you who don't know i don't know how many of you actually live in the country or spend a lot of time around birds but for example here in new zealand in the springtime if you go golfing on the golf courses there are certain birds magpies are one and they will really go after you. They'll chase you around. They'll swoop and dive bomb you if you're anywhere near their nests. So they do get quite territorial and quite aggressive, as you would imagine. So this doesn't shock me. But, um, yeah, they're really going at that drone. It is interesting. And, uh, yeah, wouldn't that be something? That would be my luck. Yeah, I would be getting a drone delivering my coffee or something like that. And that would be my uh, my luck, you know, failed due to uh, due to bird strike. So, yeah, something else. All right, so uh, the next one we've got here is also from Trey, and thanks Trey for this one. And I saw, I saw the headline, but I didn't read it uh, before I got this from Trey. And this comes from the Week, and uh, it's from MSN.com, and it says why Jane Goodall won't r rule out the existence of Bigfoot. And this is from Taylor Watson, and I'll give you, I've got a direct tie-in with someone else at the end of this. The world's favorite primatologist is weighing in on the world's biggest controversy, the existence of Bigfoot, which she won't rule out. Jane Goodall told GQ about a time when she visited a, visited a remote village in Ecuador and asked the people if they'd ever seen a monkey without a tail. Three of the hunters came back and said, oh yes, we've seen monkeys without tails. They walk upright and they're about six feet tall, she recalled, noting they knew nothing of Bigfoot. Every single country has a version. Yeti, Yahweh, Wild Man. So I don't know if it's perhaps a myth that stems from maybe the last of the Neanderthals. But, th but then, is the last of the Neanderthals still living in these remote forests? I don't know. But I'm not going to say it doesn't exist. And I'm not going to say people who believe it are stupid, she concluded. Um, and good on her. Uh, good on her that she hasn't fallen into the trap that so many others do of the high and mighty, we know it all, and if you believe in something that I don't necessarily believe in, you're an idiot. Um, the Why I was saying that um, I did have a tie-in is, um, oh, trying to think of his name, There we, David Attenborough. He got asked about the Loch Ness Monster, and he got asked about Yeti and Bigfoot uh, on a talk show. I can't remember which one, but that's what he basically said. Um, he doesn't rule it out. He thinks that there could be stuff still out there, and especially in oceans or lakes, uh, as opposed to forests. He said, yeah, it's possible in forests, but obviously much harder to hide. So here, you know, you've got two of the more famous naturalists or wildlife experts, however you want to refer to it. And one of them is obviously an expert in primates. And they both said, hey, we're not ruling it out. It could be out there. So the people who huff and puff and say, oh, it's impossible and there can't be any. Uh, I tend to take these people's word uh, much more than that average person who just doesn't like something. So again, I'm not saying there are Bigfoot running around the world everywhere. I'm not saying there are millions of them out there. But uh, I think there is a distinct possibility that there are some out there still to this day. And I think throughout history, there would have been many more in the past. All right, so the next one is also from Trey. And Trey, I also saw this headline. 
And I read the article, but on another site. So thanks for sending this to me. And again, folks, this just goes to what I've talked about on this program time and time again about science telling us, oh, well, man's only been around X amount of time and man's only been in this place, say Europe, X amount of time and anything before that, blah, 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 blah. And then they get proved wrong time and time again. And the clock keeps getting rolled back. But it is to me, it's it's extremely frustrating how. If you say something that doesn't fit the narrative, straight away they just attack you. Now, of course, I know when you're talking about major claims. So let's say we said that people had been in Europe twice as long as what the current state is. Of course, you're going to need some proof to back that up, and you need to look into it. But just scoffing and calling people idiots, and they don't know what they're talking about. It's just that that uh, high-level attitude of superiority and we know better than you. It just really gets on my nerves, and it always has. And academia in general is guilty of that. Not everyone, but a lot of those uh, academic universities and that, they've just got the attitude that we know everything and you know nothing. And uh, I, for one, um, I'm sick and tired of it. It's been going on a lot longer than I've been alive, but it is really annoying. So this story is from CNN, and this says, Fossilized footprints show humans made it to North America much earlier than first thought. Oh, what do you know? And this is from Katie Hunt, and it was updated on September 23rd. So what they do a lot of times, they write an article and then they'll add things to it and update it. So the last time it was updated was on the 23rd of September. And a few of these are, and folks, a few of these are a few weeks old because Trey sent them to me and I just didn't get a chance to read them on air. So it says, North and South America were the last continents to be settled by humans. But exactly when that started is a topic that has divided archaeologists. The, common held view, the commonly held view is that people arrived in North America from Asia via Beringia. So that's the Bering Strait land bridge. I was like, what's Beringia? A land bridge that once connected the two continents at the end of the Ice Age around 13,000 to 16,000 years ago. But more recent, and some contested discoveries, have suggested humans might have been in North America earlier. Now researchers studying fossilized human footprints in New Mexico say they have the first unequivocal evidence that humans were in North America at least 23,000 years ago. So that would push that date between seven and 10,000 years back into the past. And again, I'll, I'll tell you something about it at the end of this. The propelling of the Americas, or sorry, the peopling of the Americas is one of those things that has been for many years very contentious, and a lot of archaeologists hold views with almost religious zeal. Oh, yeah. Michael Bennett, a professor and, and specialist in ancient footprints at Bournemouth University and author of a study on the new findings that published in the journal Science on Thursday. One of the problems is that there is, is very few data points, he added. Unequivocal. Bennett and his colleagues were able to accurately date 61 footprints by radiocarbon dating layers of aquatic plant seeds that had been pressed above and below them. The prints, which were discovered in the Tularosa Basin in White Sands National Park, were made 21,000 to 23,000 years ago, the researchers found. The timing and location of the prints in southwestern North America suggests that humans must have been on the continent much earlier than previously thought, Bennett said. The people who made the footprints, mostly teenagers and children, were living in New Mexico at the height of the last Ice Age. 
Between 19,000 and 26,000 years ago, a period known as the last glacial maximum, two massive ice sheets covered the northern third of the continent and reached as far south as New York City, Cincinnati, and Des Moines, Iowa. The ice and cold temperatures would have made a journey between Asia and Alaska impossible during that time, meaning the people who made the footprints likely arrived much earlier. Or some other way. Maybe by boat? It's the first unequivocal site and a good and a good data point that places people in the American Southwest around the last glacial maximum, Bennett said. That's the important point because it allows you to look at the older sites, the more controversial sites, with different light. One such site is uh, Chiquilhute Cave in Zacatecas in central Mexico, where flake stone tools shaped by humans that date back to 30,000 years ago have been found. David Rachel, a geoarchaeologist consultant who has worked with the human and animal trackways in the Tolerosa Basin for eight years, said the footprint dates provided by Bennett and his team looked extremely solid, with seeds providing very reliable and precise ages through radiocarbon dating. Plus, these dates come from seed layers located above and below the trackway surface, which brackets the track-forming event. You could not ask for a better setup, says Rachel, who was not involved in the study. However, he said it was puzzling that no artifacts such as stone tools had been found in the area. These tracks suggest that people were in New Mexico way earlier than expected. This is a theme that is gaining some serious traction in the literature. However, we need to be cautious, and more research needs to be done before we start doing a lot of arm-waving, Rachel said. The footprints were likely made in soft ground at the edge of a wetland. Wind probably blew dust over the surface, silting in the prints, Bennett said. Hunter-gatherers, he said, would have done a lot more than 10,000 steps a day meaning at least a few footprints would survive in the fossil record. The analysis of the dimensions of the footprints suggests they were made by children between 9 and 14 years old, a pattern that's, that's seen at other fossilized footprint sites. Tracks of mammoths, giant ground sloths, dire wolves, and birds are all present at the site as well. One hypothesis for this is that division of labor, in which adults are involved in skilled tasks, whereas fetching and carrying are delegated to teenagers, the study noted. Children accompany the teenagers, and collectively, they leave a higher number of footprints than preferentially recorded in the fossil record. Yeah, so folks, um, yeah, this is one, it's very contentious. I don't think it's contentious to most of the people listening to this. But to me, our history on this planet goes back a lot further than we have been led to believe. That's my personal opinion. Uh, in my mind, many more hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years further back than what we have been told. I don't think that everything started with Lucy or whatever whatever uh, ape fossil it was in Africa. Uh, that's just me. And I get that science points that way and everything else. And yeah, I'm not saying that millions of years ago, necessarily, there were people flying around here in... Um, and jetpacks or whatever, but uh, I do think that our history goes back much further than we're led to believe. I also think that there were much more advanced civilizations than we've been told further back in history, and eventually it will come out. There are other places, uh, one in San Diego, for example, one in Florida. There's several other places in North America I know of 
that have pushed that clock back to 30 plus thousand years ago. But of course, it was all dismissed out of hand. Oh, it's all bunk and oh, it's all crap and blah, blah, blah. It can't be because we know because that land bridge, uh, it's the same idiots that told us for years, oh, the Vikings weren't in North America. Then it was like, oh, well, guess they could have got to Canada. Now they've proven that they've been in Canada. And now they've found all kinds of Viking things in America and the U.S. of A. So, yeah, I just... I, I understand, as Sagan said, and I've said it on the program before, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, but also just the fact that these people instantly attack and degrade anyone whose feeling is different than the official narrative, and it's it's not even like, okay, well, where's your proof? It's just like, no, you're wrong. You're an idiot. Let's slander you in every way possible. Um, and then when the truth comes out later, oh, oh, well, I, I, I guess uh, maybe we could have been wrong. I'm um, just so over that whole stuffy attitude of it all. But anyway, uh, that's my personal opinion. As I say, I think that these things go back much, much further than we have been led to believe over the years. And I think hopefully in my in the rest of my lifetime, more and more of this will start to come out. Now, the next one again, folks, synchronicity, synchronicity, synchronicity. So during the kind of between seasons and show hiatus while I was ill, I covered a few articles about John D. And I find it astounding. Again, we're talking about John D. We're not talking about Winston Churchill or Nostradamus or someone who's super famous and you're going to find articles all the time. It's just like all of a sudden, since uh, Chris and Max in Illinois asked me to start covering start looking into John D a bit. I just, these articles are just popping up left, right, and center. I was scrolling through my Facebook feed uh, this morning and lo and behold, here's an article about John D. So of course I've got to read it for you. So this is for Max and, uh, for Max and Chris in Illinois. And this is from Gizmodo. And it says 16th century English mystics, magical mirror confirmed to be of Aztec origin. And this was from Wednesday, uh, this last Wednesday. So what would that be? Um, ninth, eighth, seventh, what, sixth. So Wednesday the sixth. I've never seen a site that just says Wednesday. That's a bit weird. Okay, so anyway, uh, and it's from George Dvorsky. And it says, scientists have shown that an obsidian hand mirror once owned by the Renaissance polymyth John D. has Aztec origins, thus confirming a long-standing mystery. John D. was quite the character. Born in 1527, the Renaissance thinker was interested in all sorts of stuff, from mathematics, geometry, and astronomy, to astrology, alchemy, and the occult. This unholy mixture of science and quackery seems unsavory by today's standards, but D., like many of his contemporaries, failed to make the distinction. This was pre-Enlightenment Europe a time when thinkers gave credence to all sorts of ideas that now seem rather strange. Now don't act all smug. Astrology still takes up way too much of our collective headspace, not to mention all sorts of other unfounded beliefs floating around these days. So there's still room for improvement. Dee was the scientific advisor to Queen Elizabeth I from 1550 to 1570, but his interests steadily gravitated towards the supernatural. By the 1580s, Dee was actively scrying, or performing divinations to predict the future. His tools included crystals, he literally used a crystal ball, and several mirrors. 
one of which was a handheld mirror made from obsidian. Historians have presumed that the striking black mirror was of Aztec origin, but no known records exist to show how D got his hands on it. New research published in Antiquity now clears up that matter, affirming the mirror's Aztec provenance. Accordingly, the paper is providing new insights into Renaissance culture and Europeans' relationship with foreign materials brought in during the colonial period. Archaeologist Stuart Campbell from the University of Manchester and colleagues Elizabeth Healy, Yaroslav Kuzmin, and Michael Glasscock uh, determined the composition and thereby the geographical source of the artifact through a geochemical analysis, specifically X-ray fluorides. Sorry, X-ray fluorescence. The obsidian mirror was bombarded with X-rays, causing it to leak out measurable amounts of radiation, the fluorescence. Different elements within the obsidian generated different types of fluorescence, allowing the team to measure its chemical composition, which in turn created a sort of chemical fingerprint for the object. The good thing about doing it with obsidian is that obsidian is only found at a limited number of volcanoes around the world, so there are quite a small number of potential sources, and we largely know their composition. Campbell explained in an email, so it simply becomes a case of matching the chemical profile of the object against the chemical profile of all the potential obsidian sources. In this case, the chemical footprint from the John D. mirror closely matched the profile of Mexican obsidian, specifically obsidian from Pachua, a known source of Aztec obsidian. In addition to this relic, the team analyzed two other presumed Aztec mirrors and a polished rectangular obsidian slab all three which were likewise found to come from Mexico. We were also able to use previous studies of Aztec obsidian mirrors, and as part of this research, we made a new catalog of similar mirrors that are known in museum collections, said Campbell. Currently, we know of 18 mirrors of this type, and all there is some variation, it is clear that John D. Mirror fits in this group very well. The European interest in these mirrors may have been a reflection of how the Aztecs used them. Polished by bat guano, they were spiritual, spiritual items used for healing, protection against evil spirits, and for capturing souls. Aztec art depicts the deity uh, Tezcatapoca, whose name translates to smoking mirror, as wearing a circular obsidian mirror, a medium and symbol of re revelation, premonition, and power, according to the study. These mirrors likely made a big impression on the European colonizers, who shipped them home as items of value. D, with his interest in the Spanish conquest of the Americas, likely heard stories of these obsidian mirrors, which possibly led him to want one for himself. Campbell says the research helps us understand something of the way in which the European voyages of discovery and engagement with other parts of the world, often through disastrous conquest, was matched by new intellectual attempts to understand how the world worked. These novel artifacts often entered the collections of nobility and experts, whether as curiosities or items that could help scientists like Dee to understand the world in new ways, he explained. It's important to see what John Dee thought he was doing in the light, said Campbell. He was attempting to understand how, how, how the world worked and thought he could do that through a search for hidden meanings. However, odd his methods now seem. New and exotic artifacts that were appearing in Europe in the 16th century were only one tool that he could use. For D, his obsession with the occult and supernatural never got him very far. After leaving Elizabeth's service, he traveled around Europe with Edward Kelly, a medium who used crystal balls to converse with angels and spirits, or so he claimed. 
The duo often performed magic in front of royalty, but Dee eventually fell into poverty. He returned to England only to find that his extensive library of books were vandalized and his scientific instruments had been stolen. The English were also becoming less tolerant of his occult practices, making it difficult for him to earn a living. He died in poverty at the age of 81. Dee has no known gravesite, but, but, but a memorial plaque was installed in 2013 inside the Church of St. Mary the Virgin of Mortlake. As for the obsidian mirror, it eventually fell into the hands of English writer and politician Horace Walpole. The relic is currently kept in the British Museum. So, yeah, that's a very interesting little one there, folks. Um, yeah, John Dee, he is a very fascinating figure, and we're definitely going to be covering more on him in future. And again, thanks, Chris, and uh, I hope you enjoyed that story. We're learning more about John Dee all the time, it looks like. It's just that synchronicity. These stories keep popping up. All right. So we just got a few more here, folks. Uh, the first one, I teased this this week in the Paranormal Sun Facebook group. And this is an interesting little one. I haven't read this yet, so I am <clears throat> interested to see what it says. It says, Unearthed Recording alleges that Einstein was enlisted to examine Roswell wreckage. And this came out October 4th. It says, In a recently unearthed recording of an interview conducted nearly 30 years ago, a former assistant to Albert Einstein alleges that the famed scientist was enlisted to examine the Roswell wreckage, including the ET occupants of the downed craft. UFO researcher Antony Brigalia uncovered the remarkable revelation when he tracked down ufologist Sheila Franklin, who interviewed Dr. Shirley Wright in 1993 about her time working with Einstein in the summer of 1947. As luck would have it, Franklin still had the tapes from her conversation with the former assistant, and what she told the researcher was nothing short of stunning. According to Wright, she accompanied Einstein in what had been dubbed a crisis conference that was hastily held in July of 1947 at a remote Army airbase in the American Southwest. Upon their arrival, the duo entered a hangar that was under he heavy security, and when they entered the building, they discovered that it contained a rather curious craft that appeared to have sustained significant damage. It was disshaped, sort of concave, Wright recalled. Its size stood up to one-fourth of the hangar floor. While her response to the strange scene was one of wonderment, half curiosity and maybe half fear, she said that Einstein was not disturbed at all and instead he was primarily concerned with what sort of insights about propulsion and the universe could be gleaned from the vehicle. The strange event took an even weirder turn. Wright claimed when the pair were then presented with the bodies of five nearly indistinguishable beings that apparently had been aboard the craft. The scientist's former assistant observed that they were about five feet tall, without hair, with big heads, and enormous dark eyes, and their skin was gray with a slight greenish tinge but for the most part their bodies were not exposed, being dressed in tight-fitting suits. The duo were then taken to another area where there was a still-living being that was struggling to stay alive and making strange sounds, but no co coherent words or communication. Shortly thereafter, Wright told Franklin she and Einstein were ushered away from the base, and the famed scientist was tasked with writing a report about the event while I was just told to keep my mouth shut. It would appear that she did just that, keeping the story a secret until 1993, when she finally felt an obligation to reveal it to the world. Alas, Wright passed away in 2015, 
and the decades-old recording appears to be her only telling of the jaw-dropping experience. Attempts to determine Einstein's whereabouts at that time that the crisis conference was held have so far proven futile, as archivists have been unable to produce his exact schedule from the time period in question. So, at the very worst here, folks, we've got at least a possibility that this happened. And, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, there have been stories going on for years and years that Enrico Fermi in Italy and Marconi were involved in the Italian UFO investigations under Mussolini. Why wouldn't you have the uh, one of the most intelligent men in the history of mankind that we know of in Albert Einstein involved in this? I mean, makes sense to me, right? So, yeah, that is a very interesting one, and we will wait and hope some more comes out on that. I mean, obviously, we can't talk to the person who's passed away, but maybe there'll be some corroboration at some point. We can live in hope anyway. You see, folks, to me, that's much more interesting than the UFO, uh, you know, disclosure that we that we got out of uh, Washington earlier in the year. I'd rather hear about this. Okay, so the next one, and this is something I've covered before i.e. this person, which was the Zodiac Killer. And this one is from Coast to Coast, and it says, Cold Case Team Believes They Have Identified the Infamous Zodiac Killer. And this is from October the 6th. It says, An independent group of investigators believes they have determined the identity of the infamous Zodiac Killer, one of the more iconic cases in true crime lore. The unnerving serial killer tormented the San Francisco area during the late 1960s by way of a series of sinister slayings and cryptic letters sent to the media. The subject of numerous books, countless television programs, and even a Hollywood film, the Zodiac Killer's identity has remained a mystery for decades, with all manner of subjects being put sorry, suspects being put forward by armchair researchers doggedly digging into the case. And now a team of former law enforcement investigators is confident that they have finally unmasked the madman. According to a press release, the organization known as the Case Breakers has recovered new, new physical and forensic evidence, which they say indicates that the Zodiac Killer was a man by the name of Francis Gary Post, who passed away in 2018. One particular clue, which one member of the team called Irrefutable, is that their suspect sported a, a unique scar on his forehead that just so happens to match what four eyewitnesses reported in their observations of the killer. Additionally, the group has also secured decades of pictures from Post's former darkroom that they believe strengthens their case, including an eerie 1980 selfie that appears to show the shadow of a person wearing the unsettling Zodiac hood that the killer donned during one of his murders. Beyond that evidence, the case breakers has connected, have connected with an individual described as an outlaw-turned-Zodiac whistleblower who says that he personally witnessed Post burying the murder weapons used in killings and providing and provided the group with the location of what could be that blockbuster evidence. Other sources who have helped the organization hone in on their suspect include Post's former daughter-in-law, who asserted that she was subjected to a campaign of terror organized by the suspected serial killer when the relationship unceremoniously ended, as well as a woman who was babysat by Post in the 1970s and said that his wife recently revealed to her that he had in fact been the Zodiac Killer. As of yet, the FBI and associated law enforcement groups tasked with the investigating tasked with investigating the decades-old cold case have yet to respond to the findings put forward 
by the case breakers. That said, the group is hoping to compare post-DNA to material collected from the crime scene of a suspected Zodiac victim, Cherry Joe Bates, as they believe that it would be a definitive match. Should that be the case, they contend that the circumstantial clues connecting that murder to the Zodiac series of killings would confirm that Post was behind the entire series of murders. While one can't help but be optimistic due to the confidence expressed by the casebreakers, it would also be wise to temper expectations, as this is not the first time that a promising Zodiac suspect has been pro proposed, only for the case to remain maddeningly unsolved. So with all of these folks, I always do hope that they do solve it in the end and they find out who it was that did it. It's got to be really hard for the family members of the victims who were killed to not know who the person was that, that, that took your loved one's life. Um, sooner or later, uh, I think most of these will be solved. There will be cases that will be very difficult to solve definitively, like uh, Jack the Ripper, because it was before DNA evidence and other things. But um, I do think that a lot of these will be solved as time goes on. Um, might take a while, but I think most of these serial killer types where we don't know who it was, they will eventually be found out. All right, so we got a couple more here, folks. The first one is, and these are from Coast to Coast as well. The first one here is says, cube-shaped UFO filmed in New Jersey. And I'm just going to play this video real quick, and then I'm going to read it for you because I saw this earlier in the week. I saw some people talking about it, but I hadn't actually watched it. So just want to see what we're talking about before I read it for you. So it says it's in Vineland, New Jersey, or, or Vinland, New Jersey. So it says it was captured during a thunderstorm. Just watching this video really quickly. It's about two minutes, but I just want to see the cube. I want to see what this cube thing looks like. Okay, so basically this is up on the edge of a cloud. It is cube-shaped. It looks like part of the cube is still behind the cloud, whatever the cube may be. And the commentator on the video is basically saying that the person who filmed it said that there was a silent lightning storm, so there was no sound of thunder, and they thought it was a bit odd, so they pulled out their phone to film it. And there's a flash, and you can see this cube, and then the next time there's a thunder flash, uh, sorry, lightning flash, it's gone. So, and they didn't move their position. That's what he claims anyway. So now I'll read it for you. So it says, a curious piece of footage circulating online appears to show a cube-shaped object lingering in the clouds over a city in New Jersey. The intriguing video was reportedly recorded on September 28th in the community of Vineland, according to the witness who recorded the weird scene. A strange silent lightning storm was passing over the area, which prompted them to go outside and film the peculiar event. Although they did not notice it at the time, when the person watched the video later, they spotted an unusual anomaly in the sky. In the video, as the lightning illuminates the darkened night, what seems to be a cube can be seen in the clouds. Given the silent nature of the storm, some observers have suggested that perhaps the object itself was generating the meteorological effects that made it visible. However, more skeptical viewers contend that the craft is merely a literal trick of light and shadow, making an oddly shaped cloud appear to be something alien. With that in mind, what's your take on the puzzling footage? And again, if you want to check it out, folks, there's a link in the show notes. It's definitely not one of the most um, uh, groundbreaking 
pieces of UFO footage you'll ever see, but it is interesting. Right, so we got one final one here, and I had to make sure that we had a cryptid story besides just the Jane Goodall comments. So I've got one here, and this is another video one that I haven't seen, so let's just start the video while I read for you. Oh, this is a long one. Um, it's a bit, bit, bit long for me to watch the whole thing while I report to you. It's 12 minutes, so it says, Fisherman claims to have spotted legendary West Virginia river monster. Says a pair of fishermen in West Virginia have come forward with a remarkable story of having spotted a famed river monster known as Agua. According to a local media report, Nate Moreno and sorry, Nate Moreno and Jake Byer encountered the mysterious creature while they were catfishing at the state's West Fork River one summer night back in 2019. <sighs> yeah, look, they might have reasons, but I am interested that it was two years ago. Uh, you know, over two years ago, and now it's just coming to the forefront. That, that seems a bit odd. Suddenly at around midnight, Moreno caught sight of something sizable that was intruding the flow of the water, to the point that it made a strange circular shape. Initially thinking that perhaps the anomaly was a ball that had gotten stuck in the river, his assessment quickly changed when he got a better look at the strange object. Moreno recalls noticing a snake-like movement somewhere behind this ball to the point that he began to wonder what exactly he was watching in the water. Then, like a scene from a horror movie, he realized that it's all one thing. It's all one creature of some sort. Moreno quickly alerted Byer to the oddity emerging from the river, and the pair attempted to get some kind of light on it, in order to have a better look at the mysterious animal. However, he lamented, by the time we got everything situated where we would have good illumination in the river, it was gone. Sadly, as is so often the case, when Moreno later shared his story with some friends, they dismissed his tale and largely laughed at him. However, Moreno and Barr got a bit of retribution when last year, when a local media outlet wrote about a famed river monster known as Ogua that is said to lurk in the waterways of the area. For so long, there was no way to clearly identify it because we didn't know what it was, he mused. We just knew it was this was big and it was alive, and then that's when we read the story about the fabled Ogua and made complete sense. Legend has it that the mysterious creature is a massive 20-foot turtle that weighs 500 pounds and occasionally ventures onto land in search of food. Fortunately for the two fishermen, it would appear that Ogua wasn't particularly hungry that night. Otherwise, they may not have been around to share their story today. So yeah, interesting little one. Um... I'm just kind of scanning across the video here. It's just these guys, these two guys talking, folks. So there's no actual footage of what they saw. But yeah, um, people do see interesting things like this all over the world all the time. And it doesn't seem to matter if it's fresh water, salt water. People see creatures all over the world um, quite often. And I mean, that's why sea serpents and, and things like that are pretty much in every culture from time immemorial. It is a very interesting thing. Well, folks, that is the news of the dam for this episode. I hope that you've liked those stories. Like I say, if you want to check out any of them, you can go into the show notes and follow the links there and go and check out any of these articles for yourself. Now, with that being said, folks, it's now time for you to go and get yourself some snacks or a nice drink, be it an adult beverage, a cup of coffee or whatever you may like. Sit down, sit back, and relax as I'm going to now cover one of the most astounding and one of the biggest UFO cases of all time. 
the famous case of Betty and Barney Hill and the abduction in the White Mountains in 1961. An incident which is perhaps one of the most widely publicized and well-known close encounter cases involved Betty Hill and her late husband Barney. The Hill case has become a classic example of alleged extraterrestrial contact with human beings because it contains elements which are still the subject of heated debate among UFO investigators all over the world. Dr. Simon was astounded by Betty's hypnotic recall of the alleged abduction, mainly because Barney told him essentially the same incredible story in a separate hypnotic interview. Simon felt the possibility of a hoax was remote. The Hills had obviously undergone a traumatic experience, but was it real or an illusion? So then they roll me over on my back, and the examiner has a long needle in his hand, and I see the needle, and it's bigger than any needle that I've ever seen. September in the White Mountains is the cruelest month. The gaunt hotels, vestiges of Victorian tradition, were shuttered, or getting ready to be motels, and overnight cabins flashed their neon vacancy signs for only a few fitful hours before their owners gave up and retired early. The New Hampshire ski slopes were barren of snow and skiers, the trails appearing as great brownish gashes beside the silent tramways and chairlifts. The Labor Day exodus had swept most of the roads clear of traffic. Very few vacation trailers and roof-laden station wagons straggled toward Boston or New York thoroughways. Winter was already here on the chilled and ominous slopes of Mount Washington, its summit weather station clocking the highest wind velocities ever recorded on any mountaintop in the world up to that time. 231 miles per hour, recorded on April the 12th, 1934. Bears and red foxes roam freely. In a few weeks, hunters in scarlet or luminous orange jackets would be on the trails, intent on deer or ruffled grouse or anything legal in sight. The skiers would follow later, their minds on powder snow and hot buttered rum, as they would bring back the cheery holiday mood of summer when once again the White Mountains would take on a new life. It was during this doleful mid-September period of 1961, September the 19th to be exact, that Barney Hill and his wife Betty began their return drive from the Canadian border down US-3 through the White Mountains on their way home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It was to be a night drive, brought on by a sense of urgency. The radio of their 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air hardtop made it clear that a hurricane coming up the coast might cut in towards New Hampshire an event that is that in previous years had uprooted trees and spilled high-tension power lines across the roads. They had failed to bring along enough cash to cover all the extras of their holiday trip, and their funds had dwindled sharply as they had driven leisurely up to Niagara Falls, then circled back through Montreal towards home. They had cleared through the U.S.-Canadian Custom House at about nine that evening, winding along the lonely ceiling of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, a section of the state that is said to have threatened to succeed, not only from Vermont, but from the United States as well. It held independent status as the Vermont Republic from 1777 to 1791. The traffic was sparse. Few other cars appeared on the road before the hills approached the welcome lights of Colebrook, a half an hour later. An ancient New Hampshire settlement founded in 1770, lying in the shadow of Mount Monadnock, just across the river from Vermont. The lights of the village, though a relief from the endless turns of the narrow two-way road they had been traveling, were few. A forlorn glow came from the windows of a single restaurant, and when they realized that this might be the last chance for any bracing refreshment for the rest of the trip, they decided to turn back even though they had driven past it. The restaurant was nearly deserted. 
a few teenagers gathering in a far corner was the sum of the patrons. Only one woman, the waitress, in the quiet restaurant seemed to show any reaction at all to the fact that Betty and Barney Hill were in a, as called at this time, mixed marriage. Barney was a strikingly handsome descendant of a proud Ethiopian freeman. Barney's great-grandmother was born during slavery, but raised in the house of the plantation owner because she was his own daughter. Betty's family bought three tracts of land in York, Maine in 1637, only to have one member cut down by a Native American war party. Regardless of what attention their mixed marriage drew in public places, they were no longer self-conscious about it. Their first attraction to each other, one that remained, was of intellect and mutual interest. Together they had stumped the state of New Hampshire, speaking for the cause of civil rights. Barney, former political action and now legal redress chairman of the Portsmouth NAACP, was also a member of the State Advisory Board of the United States Civil Rights Commission and on the Board of Directors of the Rockingham County Poverty Program. Both he and his wife were proud to display the award he received from Sergeant Shriver, an American diplomat, politician, and activist. As the husband of Eunice Kennedy Shriver, he was part of the Kennedy family. Barney received that for his work. Betty, a social worker for the state of New Hampshire, volunteered after hours with her job as assistant secretary and community coordinator for the NAACP, and as United Nations envoy for the Unitarian Universalist Church to which they belonged in Portsmouth. But what was to happen to them this night of September the 19th, 1961, had nothing whatever to do with their successful marriage or their dedication to social progress, nor was there any hint of what was to happen to them as they sat at the paneled restaurant counter in Colebrook, Barney unceremoniously eating a hamburger, Betty a piece of chocolate layer cake. They didn't linger too long at the counter, just long enough for a cigarette and a cup of black coffee before they continued down US-3 towards home. The distance from Colebrook to Portsmouth is 170 miles, and US-3 was remarkably smooth and navigable in the face of the deep mountain gorges it negotiated. Further south below Plymouth, nearly 30 miles of four-lane highway invited safe speeds up to 65 miles an hour. For the other roads, Barney Hill liked to drive between 50 and 55, even if this was a shade above the limit. The clock over the restroom in the Colebrook restaurant read 10.05 p.m. when they left that night. It looks, Barney had said to Betty, as they got in the car, like we should be home by 2.30 in the morning, or 3 at the latest. Betty agreed. She had confidence in Barney's driving, even though she sometimes goaded him for pushing too fast. It was a bright, clear night, with an almost full moon. The stars were brilliant, as they always were in the New Hampshire mountains, on a cloudless night when sunshine seems to illuminate the tops of the peaks with a strange incandescence. The car was running smoothly through the night air, the road winding effortlessly along the flat ground of the uppermost Connecticut River Valley, an ancient Indian and lumbering country, rich in history and legend. The 30 miles south to Northumberland, where Rogers Rangers made their rendezvous after the sack of St. Francis during the French and Indian War, passed quickly. Betty, an avid sightseer, enjoyed the brilliance of the moon reflecting on the valley and the mountains in the distance, both in New Hampshire to the east and over the river to Vermont in the west. Delsey, the hill's scrappy little dachshund, was at peace on the floor by the front seat at Betty's feet. Through Lancaster, a village with a wide main street and fine old pre-revolutionary houses, all dark now on this September night, US-3 continued south 
as the Connecticut River swung westward to widen New Hampshire's territory and narrow Vermont's. Here the smooth, wide valleys changed to a more uncertain path through the mountains, with the serrated peaks of the Pilot Range, described lushly by one rider as a great rolling rampart which plays fantastic tricks with the sunrise and shadow, and towards sunset assumes the tenderest tints of deep amethyst. There was no sunshine or amethyst now, only the luminous moon, very bright and large, and a black tar-sealed two-lane road which seemed totally deserted. To the left of the moon, and slightly below it, was a particularly bright star, perhaps a planet, Betty thought, because of its steady glow. Just south of Lancaster, the exact time she cannot remember, Betty was a little startled to notice that another star or planet, a bigger one, had appeared above the other. It had not been there, she was sure, when she looked before. But more curious was the new celestial visitor clearly appeared to be getting bigger and brighter. For several moments she watched it, saying nothing to her husband as he negotiated the driving through the mountains. Finally, when the strange light persisted, she nudged Barney, who slowed the car somewhat and looked out the right-hand side of the windshield to see it. When I looked at it first, Barney Hill later said, it didn't seem anything particularly unusual, except that we were fortunate enough to see a satellite. It had no doubt gone off its course, and it seemed to be going along the curvature of the Earth. It was quite a distance out, meaning it looked like a star in motion. They drove on, glancing at the bright object frequently, finding it difficult to tell if the light itself were moving or if the movement of the car were making it seem to move. The object would disappear behind trees or a mountain top, then reappear again as the obstruction was cleared. Delzy the dog was beginning to get slightly restless, and Betty mentioned that perhaps they should let her out and take advantage of the road stop to get a better look. Barney, who was an avid plane watcher, sometimes liked to take his two sons from a former marriage to watch Piper Cub seaplanes land and take off. He agreed and pulled the car over to the side of the road, where there was reasonably unobstructed visibility. There were woods nearby, and Barney, who was a worrier at times, mentioned they might keep an eye out for bears, which was a distinct possibility in this part of the country. Betty, who seldom let herself get concerned or emotional about anything, laughed his suggestion off, snapped the chain lead on Delsey's collar, and walked her along the side of the road. At this moment, she noted that the star, or the light, or whatever it was in the September sky, was definitely moving. As Barney joined her on the road, she handed Delsey's leash to him and went back to the car. She took from the front seat a pair of 7x50-power crescent binoculars. These specs are good for amateur astronomy, excellent for low light, designed for steady setups, like on a tripod, heavy, good for hunters and wildlife observers. I mention this as these were not dime store, cheap binoculars. They had brought these along for their holiday scenery, especially Niagara Falls, which Betty had never seen before. Barney, noting that the light in the sky was moving, was now fully convinced that it was a straying satellite. It should be noted, folks, that there were very few disclosed satellites, less than 20 in orbit, in 1961. So it's not like now where you've got Skylink and all these other satellites in the sky. Betty put the binoculars up to her eyes and focused carefully. What they both were about to see was to change their lives forever, and some observers claim changed the course of the history of the world. The holiday trip had been a spontaneous idea, originating with Barney. For some time now he had been assigned to the night shift at the Boston Post Office, where he worked as an assistant dispatcher. He liked the job, if not the hours, and the long commuting drive 
from Portsmouth to Boston each night, 60 miles each way. The commuting was especially exhausting, with no train or bus available at the late night hour he began work. The rigors of the daily 120-mile round trip had, Barney felt, been instrumental in causing his ulcer to flare up, a condition for which he was under medical treatment. He began thinking about the idea for the trip while he was driving into work on the evening of September the 14th, 1961. Betty had a week's vacation coming up, a badly needed break from her job as a child welfare worker for the state, handling a rather overwhelming caseload of 120 assignments at any one time. With luck, Barney would be able to take some of his vacation leave and relieve some of the pressure while waiting for the results of some recent x-rays of his ulcer that the doctor had taken. All during that night at work, the idea appealed to him more. It grew on him as he went through his usual routine, standing in front of some 40 clerks sorting mail, calling out numbers of towns or sections of the city of Boston. The clerk, in turn, would put the mail from designated slots onto a conveyor belt, where the mail handlers would carry the process on as the hampers moved to the elevators to be dispatched. Barney, with an IQ of nearly 140, could handle more complex jobs than this. But like so many post office workers, he found the frustration of routine work compensated for by the civil service advantages. Further, the steadiness of the job gave him ample time for his community service work, which he found both demanding and rewarding. He punched out of the Boston post office at 7.30 the following morning and drove towards Portsmouth in anticipation of surprising Betty. Just the idea of getting away relaxed him. Though the harsh realities of the New Hampshire winter would soon be on them, the roads would be free and clear now, and the traffic would be light, ideal for leisurely traveling. They planned their trip that morning over a cup of hot coffee, Betty accepting the idea at once. But trip money was not in the budget. Barney's main regret was that his two sons couldn't join them, as they both had made a pleasant adjustment to the second marriage, with mutual affection springing up spontaneously between the boys and Betty, a condition that Barney whimsically attributed to Betty's expert cookery. The total adjustment to their marriage had been remarkably smooth. Their problems as an interracial couple were minimal. Barney, at times, showed concern about rejection in public places, hotels, restaurants, or at meetings. But in their private social life, they were popular, accepted, and almost overactive. Their initial self-consciousness dissolved quickly. It doesn't have any more meaning to me, Betty once told a friend, than a person having blue eyes or brown eyes. Everyone wants to meet us. Everybody wants to invite us places. We've even had to set up some kind of limits, where we would be going here, there, everywhere, constantly. The planning of the trip that was to have such a profound impact on their lives was brief and relaxed. The shortage of immediate funds was partially compensated for by Betty's idea of borrowing a car refrigerator from a friend. In this way, the expense of too many meals in restaurants would be reduced. Barney, momentarily ignoring the diet of for his ulcers, drank a glass of orange juice, ate six strips of bacon, and two soft-boiled eggs, as he plotted the course of the trip on a few road maps. They would drive leisurely, avoiding the thoroughways, pay a brief visit to Niagara Falls, then circle through Montreal and back to Portsmouth. While Betty shopped for food, Barney took a nap to recover from his all-night work at the Boston Post Office. They finished most of their packing that afternoon, filled the car refrigerator with food, and put it in the deep freeze. By 8 o'clock that evening, they were in bed with the alarm set for 4 the next morning. Barney, an unerring early riser, was up first. 
but in moments, Betty had coffee percolating, and the last-minute packing process began. As he loaded the trunk, Barney shoved a bag of bone meal fertilizer to one side and packed the luggage around it. Betty had bought the fertilizer to work on the garden during the vacation. It was just as easy to let it stay in the trunk as to take it out. Later, they were to find this mundane material created an unusual inquiry and speculation. It was a clear, crisp New Hampshire morning as they drove off, noting the mileage on the speedometer, only to lose the slip of paper later on, an ingrained habit of Barney's. They drove out Route 4 towards Concord, in a festive mood. Barney at the wheel burst into a hoarse version of, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Betty, who loved to hear Barney sing, smiled. Barney, who loved to please Betty, smiled back. There was no hint at all of what was to happen later, nor could there be. The object they saw in the sky near Route 3 four nights later, south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, continued its unpredictable movement as they passed through Whitfield and the village of Twin Mountain. They stopped briefly several times, and by now Barney was frankly puzzled by the bright object. His only alternate theory, aside from that of a satellite, was that the object was a star, a theory he immediately discounted because they had proved that it was in movement, changing its course in an erratic manner. At one of the stops, a few miles north of Cannon Mountain, Betty had said, Barney, if you think that's a satellite or a star, you're being absolutely ridiculous. With his naked eye, Barney could tell that she was right. It was obviously not a celestial object. Now he was sure. We made a mistake, Betty, he said. It's a commercial plane, probably on its way to Canada. He got back in the car and they continued driving on. Betty in the passenger seat kept it in view as they moved down Route 3. It seemed to her that it was getting bigger and brighter, and she kept getting more puzzled and more curious. Barney would, would note it through the windshield on occasion, but was more worried about a car coming around the now-frequent curves in the road. His theory that it was a commercial airliner headed for Canada soothed his annoyance at the fact that he might be confronted with some unexplainable phenomena. The road was completely deserted. They hadn't seen a car or truck in either direction for miles now, which left them alone in the deep gorges late at night. Some natives of northern New Hampshire prefer never to drive through these roads at night, through long-standing custom and superstition. In winter, an informal group known as the Blue Angels patrolled the roads for cars frozen or broken down. It was too easy to freeze to death in these lonely stretches, and the state troopers cannot possibly cover the wide territory frequently enough. Barney, his concern growing in spite of his comforting theories, hoped that he would soon see a trooper or at least another car driving by which he could flag down and compare notes with. Around 11 o'clock they approached the enormous and somber silhouette of Cannon Mountain, looming to the west on their right. Barney slowed the car down near a picnic turnout that commanded a wide view of the west and looked again at the strange moving light. In amazement he noted that it swung suddenly from its northern flight pattern, turning to the west, then completing its turn and heading back directly towards them. Barney braked the car sharply, turning off into the picnic area. Whatever you're calling it, Barney, Betty said. I don't know why, because it's still up there, and it's still following us, and if anything, it's coming right towards us. It's got to be a plane, Barney said. They were standing in the picnic area now, looking up at the light, which was growing bigger still, a commercial liner. With a crazy course like that, Betty said. Well, then it's a Piper Cub. That's what it is, with some hunters, 
who might be lost. It's not the hunting season, Betty said, as Barney took the binoculars from her, and I don't hear a sound. Neither did Barney, although he desperately wanted to. It might be a helicopter, he said, as he looked through the binoculars. He was sure that it wasn't, but was reaching for any kind of ex explanation that would make sense. The wind might be carrying the sound the other direction. There's no wind, Barney. Not tonight. You know that. Through the binoculars, Barney now made out a shape, like the fuselage of a plane, although he could see no wings. There also seemed to be a blinking series of lights along the fuselage, or whatever it was, in an alternating pattern. When Betty took the glasses, the object passed in front of the moon, in silhouette. It appeared to be flashing thin pencils of different colored lights, rotating around an object that at that time appeared cigar-shaped. Just a moment before it had changed its speed from slow to fast, then slowed down again as it crossed the face of the moon. The lights were flashing persistently, red, amber, green, blue. She turned to Barney, asking him to take another look. It's got to be a plane, Barney said. Maybe a military plane, a search plane. Maybe it's a plane that's lost. He was getting irritated at Betty now, or taking out his irritation on her because she was refusing to accept a natural explanation. At one time, several years before, in 1957, Betty's sister and family had described seeing clearly an unidentified flying object in Kingston, New Hampshire, where they lived. Betty, who had confidence in her sister's reliability and capacity for observation, believed the story of her sighting. Barney neither believed nor disbelieved. He was indifferent to the subject as a whole, had little interest in it. If anything, he was more skeptical of flying objects after having heard her story. He felt that Betty, for the first time in five years, was about to bring this subject up again, but she didn't mention it to his surprise. Beside them, the dachshund was whining and cowering. Betty gave the binoculars to Barney, took Delsey to the car, and got in and shut the door. Barney put the glasses on the object again, again wishing that he could find some comfort from comparing notes with another motorist. He wanted above all to hear a sound, the throb of a propeller-driven plane, or the whir of a jet, but none came. For the first time he felt he was being observed, that the object was actually coming closer and attempting to circle them. If it's a military craft, he was thinking, it should not do this, and his mind went back to the time a few years ago when a jet had buzzed close by him, shattering the sound barrier and cracking the air with an explosion. Getting back in the car, Barney mentioned to Betty that he thought the craft had seen them and was playing games with them. He tried not to let Betty know he was afraid, something he didn't like to admit himself. They drove on toward Cannon Mountain, at not much more than five miles an hour, catching glimpses of the object as it moved erratically in the sky. At the top of the mountain, the only light they had seen for miles glowed like a beacon, appearing to be on top of the closed and silent aerial tramway, or perhaps on the restaurant there. They stopped again near the base of the mountain momentarily as the object suddenly swung behind the dark silhouette and disappeared. At the same moment, the light on the top of the mountain went out, inexplicably. Betty looked at her watch as it did so, wondering if the restaurant was closed. She could not read the dial very plainly in the dashboard light and never did get an accurate time reading. If there were people up there, she thought, they must be getting an exceptional view of the object. As the car moved... By the darkened silhouette of the old man of the mountain, the object appeared again, gliding silently, leisurely, parallel to the car to the west of them, on the Vermont side of the car. 
It was more heavily wooded here, more difficult to keep the object in sight as it glided behind the trees. But it was there, moving with them. Near the turnoff for the flume, a tourist attraction, they stopped again. Almost got a sharp, clear look at it, but again the trees intervened. Just beyond the flume, they passed a small motel, the first sign of life they had seen for many miles. The tidy hostelry looked comforting, although Barney, his eyes alternately moving between the curves of the road and the object in the sky, barely noticed it. Betty noted a sign, beaming with AAA approval, and the light in a single lonely window. A man was standing in the doorway of one of the cottages, and Betty thought how easy it would be to end the whole situation right now by simply pulling into the motel. She was thinking this, but she didn't say anything to Barney. Her curiosity about the object had now become overwhelming, and she was determined to see more of it. By now, Barney was beginning to irritate her by trying to deny the existence of the object. In fact, he was. He was still concerned about another car coming around a blind curve while he tried to keep one eye on the object as it moved around almost directly ahead of them above the road. It was now apparently only a few hundred feet off the road, and it was enormous. Further, it seemed to Betty that it was spinning. Now it had stopped, and the light pattern had changed from blinking, multicolored lights to a steady white glow. In spite of the vibrations of the car, she put the binoculars to her eyes and looked again. She drew a quick, involuntary breath because she could clearly see a double row of windows. Without magnification, it had appeared to only be a streak of light. Now it was clear that this was a structured craft of enormous dimensions, just how large she couldn't tell because both distance and altitude were hard to judge exactly. Then, slowly, a red light came out on the left side of the object, followed by a similar one on the right. Barney, she said, I don't know why you're trying not to look at this. Stop the car and look at it. It'll go away by the time I do that, Barney said. He was not at all convinced that it would. Barney, you've got to stop. You'll never see anything like this in your life. He looked through the windshield and could see it plainly now. Not more than 200 feet in the air, he thought, and coming closer. A curve to the left in the road now shifted the object to the right of the car, but the distance remained the same. To the right, not far south of Indian Head, where another famous historic stone face surveys the mountains and valleys, he saw two imitation commercial wigwams on the site of a close-for-winter venue known as Natureland. Here, hundreds of youngsters swarm with their parents during summer visits but at this moment it was silent and tomb-like. Barney stopped the car almost in the center of the road, forgetting in the excitement any problem with the other traffic. All right, give me the binoculars, he said. Betty resented his tone. It sounded as if he were trying to humor her. Barney got out, the motor still running, and leaned his arm on the door of the car. By now the object had swung toward them and was hovering silently in the air, not more than a short city block away not more than two treetops high. It was floating on an angle, and its full shape was apparent for the first time, that of a large glowing pancake. But the vibrations from the motor jostled his arm, blurring his vision. He stepped to one side of the car to get a better look. Do you see it? Do you see it? Betty said. For the first time, her voice was rising in emotion. Barney, he admitted frankly later, was scared, perhaps as much because Betty rarely became excited as because of the nearness of this strange and utterly silent object defying almost any law of aerodynamics. It's just a plane or something, he snapped at her. Okay, Betty said, it's a plane. 
But did you ever see a plane with two red lights? I always thought planes had one red light and one green light. Well, I can't get a good look at it, he said. The car was shaking the binoculars. Then he stepped a few feet away and looked again. As he did so, the huge object, as wide in diameter as the distance between three telephone poles along the road, Barney later described, it swung in a silent arc directly across the road, not more than a hundred feet from him. The double row of windows was now clear and obvious. Barney was fully gripped with fear now, but for a reason that he would never be able to explain, he found himself moving across the road on the driver's side of the car, onto the field, and across the field, directly towards the object. Now the enormous disc was slanted on an angle towards him. Two fin-like projections on either side were now sliding out further, each with a red light on it. The windows curved around the craft, around the perimeter of the thick, pancake-like disc, glowing with brilliant white light. There was still no sound. Shaken, but still finding an irresistible impulse to move closer to the craft, he continued on across the field, coming within fifty feet of it, as it dropped down to the height of a single tall tree. He did not estimate its size in feet, except that he knew it was as big or bigger in diameter than the length of a jet airliner. Back in the car, Betty was not at first aware that Barney was walking away from her. She was thinking that this wasn't a very smart place to park the car, in the middle of the highway. Even though there were no curves nearby, the car was neither on the right nor the left. It was splitting the white dotted line down the middle of the road. She would watch, she thought, to see if any headlights appeared, either in front of or to the rear of the car, and at least pull the car quickly out of the way if another should appear on the road. She busied herself doing this for several moments, and then suddenly became aware that Barney had disappeared into the blackness of the field. Instinctively, she called for him. Barney, she screamed. Barney, you damn fool, come back here. If he didn't re reappear in a moment, she resolved to go out after him. Barney, what's wrong with you? Do you hear me? There was no answer, and she started to slide across the front seat, toward the open door on the driver's side of the car, out on the field, near a shuttered vegetable stand, and a single gnarled apple tree, Barney put the binoculars up to his eyes. Then he stopped and became deathly still. Behind the clearly structured window, he could see the figures, at least half a dozen living beings. They seemed to be bracing themselves against the transparent windows as the craft tilted down towards his direction. They were, as a group, staring directly at him. He became vaguely aware that they were wearing uniforms. Betty, now nearly 200 feet away, was screaming at him from the car. But Barney would never have any recollection at the time, or later, of hearing her call. The binoculars seemed glued to his eyes. Then, on some invisible, inaudible signal, every member of the crew stepped back from the window toward a large panel a few feet behind the window line. Only one remained there looking at him, apparently a leader. In the binoculars, Barney could see appendages in action among the apparent crew at what seemed to be a control board behind the windows of the craft. Slowly the craft descended lower, a few feet at a time, as the fins bearing the two red lights spread out further on the sides of the craft. An extension lowered from the underside, perhaps a ladder. He could not be sure. He sharpened the focus of the binoculars on the one face remaining at the window. His memory at this point is blurred. For a reason he cannot explain, he was certain he was about to be captured. He tried to pull the glasses away from his eyes, to turn away, but he couldn't. 
As the focus became sharp, he remembers the eyes of the one crew member who stared down at him. Barney had never seen eyes like that before. With all his energy, he ripped the binoculars from his eyes and ran screaming back across the field to Betty and the car. He tossed the binoculars on the seat, barely missing Betty, who had just straightened up from getting ready to slide out of his side of the car as she heard him running across the hard surface of the road. Barney was near hysteria. He jammed the car into first gear and hammered off down the road, shouting that he was sure they were going to be captured. He ordered Betty to look out the window to see where the craft was. She rolled down the window on the passenger side and looked out. The object was nowhere in sight. Craning her neck, she looked directly above the car. She could see nothing whatever. The strange craft did not appear in sight, but neither were the stars, which had seconds ago been so brilliant in the sky. Barney kept yelling that he was sure it had swung above them. Betty checked again, but all she could see was total darkness. She looked out the rearview window, saw nothing except, except stars, then visible through the window. Then suddenly a strange electronic-sounding beep was heard. The car seemed to vibrate with it. It was an irregular rhythm. Beep, 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 seeming to come from behind the car, in the direction of the trunk. Barney said, What's that noise? Betty said, I don't know, Barney. They each began to feel an odd, tingling drowsiness come over them. From that moment, a sort of haze came over them. Some time later, how long they were not sure, the beeping sound repeated itself. They were conscious only that there were two sets of these beeps, separated by a time span they had no idea about, nor what had happened or how long it had taken. As the second set of beeps grew louder, the hills apparently slowly returned. They were still in the car, and the car was moving, with Barney at the wheel. They were silent, numb, and somnambulistic. At first they rode silently, glancing out at the road to see just where they might be. A sign told them they were somewhere in the vicinity of Ashland, 35 miles south of Indian Head, where the inexplicable beeping had first sounded. In those first few moments of consciousness, Betty recalled faintly saying to her husband, Now do you believe in flying saucers? And he recalled answering, Don't be ridiculous, of course not. But neither would remember much detail, other than this, until they had driven on to the new thoroughway, US-93. Not long after entering this highway, Betty suddenly snapped out of her semi-wakefulness and pointed to a sign reading Concord, 17 miles. That's where we are, Barney, she said. Now we know. Barney, too, remembers this mine clearing at this point. He does not even recall being disturbed or concerned about the 35 miles between Indian Head and Ashland, about which he seemed to remember nothing. They drove on towards Concord, saying little. They did decide, though, that the experience at Indian Head was so strange, so unbelievable, that they would tell no one about it. No one would believe it anyway, Barney said. I find it hard to believe myself. Betty agreed. Near Concord, they looked for a place to have a cup of coffee, but nothing was open, anywhere. Still groggy and uncommunicative, they plowed on, now turning east on Route 4, swinging across the state, towards the ocean, and Portsmouth. Just outside of Portsmouth, they noticed dawn streaking the sky in the east. As they drove through the, the streets of the slumbering city, no one was stirring. The birds were already chattering, though, and it was nearly full daylight when they reached home. Barney looked at his watch, but it had stopped running, and shortly afterward Betty looked at hers which had also stopped. Inside, the kitchen clock read shortly after five in the morning. It looks, said Barney, 
like we've arrived home a little later than expected. Betty took Delsey out on her chain for a morning airing, while Barney unloaded the car. The birds were in full chorus now, a background for Betty's thoughts of the night before, which still haunted her. Barney, too, was thoughtful and said little. For a reason she couldn't pinpoint, Betty asked him to put the luggage in the back hall, instead of having it in the house. He complied, then went to clear out the rest of the, of the car. Picking up the binoculars, he noticed for the first time an unusual thing. The leather strap that had been around his neck the night before was freshly and cleanly broken in half. From Concord on down, during the silent drive, both Betty and Barney had looked at the sky at regular intervals, wondering if the strange object would appear again. Even after they went into the house, a red-framed structure on a small plot in Portsmouth, they found themselves occasionally going to the windows to look up at the morning sky. Both had a strange, clammy feeling. They sat down at the kitchen table over a cup of coffee, but not before Barney went into the bathroom to examine his lower abdomen, which for a reason he could not explain was bothering him. Two years later, he still could not recall what made him do this. After he came out of the bathroom, they reviewed what had happened, and again resolved not to discuss it with anyone. The latter part of the trip was extremely vague. They couldn't recall much of anything about the drive from Indian Head to Ashland. They had some fragmentary recollections of going through Plymouth, just north of this second series of beeps. Barney was baffled and confused by the absence of sound in the craft. He tried to classify it as a known aircraft in spite of the complete foreign appearance, the otherworldly feeling it had created in them. They remembered two distinct series of beeps. But the period of time in between was puzzling to them. Betty, with the aid of a strong cup of coffee, could recall, very faintly, some of the things which had happened right after Indian Head. She could recall seeing a road marker that divided the towns of Lincoln and North Woodstock, but it was a flashing, fragmentary impression. She could remember passing a store in the town of North Woodstock, again an isolated impression. Both recalled very faintly a large, luminous moon shape, which seemed to be touching the road, sitting on end under some pines. Betty, straining to remember, thought that Barney had made a sharp left turn from Route 3, but could not in any way identify where this might have been. When they had seen the moon-shaped object, Barney faintly recalled saying to Betty, Oh no, not again. Betty recalls her reaction to Barney's denial that it could have been an unidentified flying object. She thought, that's the way Barney is. If something frightens him, or he doesn't like it, he just says to himself that it never happened. Barney, to a degree, would confess to this. Both agreed that they regained full consciousness at the sign on US-93, which indicated that it was 17 miles to Concord. Before that, one other recollection came to their minds, a fragmentary image of the darkened streets of Plymouth, six miles north of Ashland, where the second series of beeps took place. When we arrived at our house, Barney said later, and Betty got out and took the dog on her leash to walk her around the yard, I got out of the car and began taking things out. Betty said she wanted me to throw the food from the refrigerator out and to keep the rest of the things from the car out of the house. I could hardly wait until I was able to get everything from the car to the back porch so that I could go into the bathroom, where I took a mirror and began looking over my body. And I don't know, I don't know why at the time, but I just felt unclean. With a grime different from that that usually accumulates on a trip, somewhat clammy. Betty and I both went to the window, and then I opened the back door and we both looked skyward, and I went into the bedroom and looked around. 
I can't describe it. It was a presence. Not that the presence was there with us, but something very puzzling had happened. They collapsed into bed immediately after breakfast, after a breakfast snack, and their sleep was undisturbed. They were hoping that the incident would fade quickly from their minds and remain only an interesting anecdote that someday they might tell someone about. They were unaware that it would affect their lives profoundly for many years to come. It was nearly three that afternoon when they woke up. Their sleep had been dreamless. Their relief considerable at being born again, bathed and well-rested. Barney, lying in bed with his eyes opened, again began recalling the strange experience of the night before. Most of all, he was baffled and confused by the total lack of sound of the object all during the extended encounter, further puzzled by the absence of any characteristics that could be related to an ordinary aircraft. He regretted deeply that no one else passed to share the experience with them. He still had the feeling that there was a presence around somewhere, a vague and totally undefinable presence. Somewhere, very faintly, it seemed that he had encountered a roadblock during the night, but this impression was blurred and indistinct. The return of awareness after he had heard the strange electronic sound came back to him very slowly. Before his mind had fully cleared, he had another flash of insight that he had turned from Route 3 to Route 104 to approach the expressway to Concord, but the sign Concord 17 miles remained both his and Betty's symbol of the return to normality. He felt as he lie in bed awake on this afternoon that the reason he and Betty said so little all during the latter part of the drive was because he, at least, had been in a mild state of shock. The figures he had seen aboard the craft he shunted quickly out of his mind. He did not want to think about them. As Betty awakened, the thoughts of what had happened that night before crowded everything else out of her mind. She could not think beyond that trip home and the experience they had had. She was to go around the rest of the day, shaking her head in disbelief. One of her first acts that afternoon, on arising, why she never fully knew, was to take the dress and shoes she had worn during the night before and pack them in the back of her closet. She would never wear them again for the rest of her life, and they will become important later on in our story. Barney, on arising, went over to the clothes he had worn the night before and was a little startled to discover that his best shoes were severely scuffed along their shiny tops. Momentarily, he was puzzled by the numerous burrs around the cuffs of his pants and on his socks, until another flood of memory came to him of walking onto and across the lonely field at Indian Head. Barney, who pays special attention to good grooming, could not understand why it was the tops of his shoes that were so badly scuffed. He finally assumed that somewhere in the field he had dragged the top of his feet along some rocks, but he did not exactly know how, and shrugged it off. Later he was to discover the possible cause. The sudden recollection of the incident at the field near Indian Head prompted him to go to the back door and look at the sky again. He was expecting something, but he didn't know what it was. He strained to recollect what happened after he put the binoculars to his eyes and rushed back to the car, but he was unsuccessful. He simply could not get beyond that point. At their second breakfast of the day, he discussed it with Betty, who pressed him on why he had rushed to the car in such excitement and why he felt they were going to be captured. Also, why hadn't he heard her screaming for him to return to the car? Later, on one of the many trips they made back to the area, they discovered that it was difficult to hear anyone calling at the distance Barney estimated he had walked into the field. Beyond all this, Barney became aware of an unexplained soreness on the back of his neck. 
Their resolution to keep the experience absolutely quiet began to waver during their afternoon breakfast session that day. Barney was trying to hold out completely, but Betty, in the light of her sister's experience with the UFO several years before, wanted to share it with her at least. Barney grudgingly went along with the idea, although he felt strongly that the best thing to do would be to try to forget about the entire incident. Betty went to the phone and called her sister, feeling a measure of relief and getting the story off her chest to a sympathetic listener. Her sister, Janet Miller, lived in nearby Kingston with her husband and children, the husband being the local scoutmaster and an amateur astronomy buff. Trying to keep calm, Betty recounted the story of the night before. Janet, who had no reservations about the possibility of a UFO sighting because of her own experience, grew very excited and confirmed Betty's growing feeling that the car or the clothes might have in some way been exposed to radiation if the object had hovered directly over the car. Up to this point, Betty's floating anxiety about some kind of contamination had been indistinct. Now, she was wondering if there were not some kind of basis in reality for the feeling she had. Janet reminded Betty that a neighbor of theirs in Kingston was a, was a physicist, and that she, sh she would check with him about what kind of evidence might possibly be extant if indeed the object had come in close proximity to the car. In a few moments, Janet was back on the phone to tell Betty that the physicist said any ordinary compass might show certain evidence of radiation if the needle became seriously disturbed on contact with the car's surface. Barney's skepticism on overhearing Betty's part of the phone conversation stiffened as she rushed around looking for the inexpensive compass that they had used on the trip. Barney was determined to be uncooperative. Where is it? she asked Barney in her impatience to find it and get out to the car. I put it in the drawer, he said. What drawer? Betty asked. None of this was helping Barney put the incident out of his mind. I don't know. You'll have to find it, he said. Betty was getting extremely aggravated. Thanks, she said. You're a big help. What do you need the compass for anyway, he said. You don't really need it. That's your viewpoint, Betty replied. Keep your viewpoint, but give me the compass. Barney finally relented and got the compass for her. She rushed outside and found it raining. She ran the compass along the wet sides of the car. The needle did not react to any appreciable extent, but as she drew it near the trunk of the car, her attention was drawn to an unusual sight. A dozen or more shiny circles scattered on the surface of the trunk, each perfectly circular and about the size of a silver dollar. They were highly polished in contrast to the dimmer surface of the rest of the trunk and the car as if the paint had been buffed through a circular stencil. She recalled at this point that the strange beeping sounds they had heard the night before came from the direction of the trunk, and in the emotional state she was, after talking to her sister, she was startled by the sight of the round, shiny spots in this vicinity. Carefully, she placed the compass on one of the spots. The needle immediately began wavering. She almost panicked, but got control of herself and placed the compass on the side of the car where none of the shiny spots appeared. The needle reacted normally, remaining pointed in one direction. Quickly, she shifted the compass back to the shiny spot. Again, the needle went out of control. She ran quickly back to the house. Barney, she said, you've got to come outside and look at this with me. There's these bright, shiny spots all over the trunk of the car, and the compass spins every time I put it anywhere near them. Barney insisted that it was her imagination, and didn't want to go out in the rain. 
In the meanwhile, a couple renting an apartment from the hills in the second floor of their house dropped down and noting that Betty was getting quite upset by something, asked what the matter was. Betty, in her state of excitement, spilled out the story of the UFO sighting to them and told them that she wanted Barney to go out and look at the strange spots and the reaction of the compass. Barney then reluctantly went out with the other couple while Betty called her sister to report the findings. Janet, in the meanwhile, had talked to the former chief of police of Newton, New Hampshire, who happened to be visiting that day, and he had immediately suggested that the Hills should notify the Peace Air Force Base in Portsmouth, a strategic Air Force Command installation that had been the recipient of a steady number of UFO reports in New Hampshire in recent months. The police chief had received instructions on this procedure in line with the rash of UFO sightings in New Hampshire. Barney came back into the living room within a few minutes, just before Betty hung up from the second call to her sister. How did the compass act for you, Betty asked. Just like any compass, he said. Oh, it might have jumped around a little when it got near the tire in the trunk, things like that. Betty eyed him coldly. Well, why did it jump around when you touched, touched it to the trunk? I don't know, Barney said. I can see why it might jump around if it were near the battery, but the spare tire? Really, Barney. Oh, I don't know, Barney said. Maybe it has something to do with the metal. It acted perfectly all right to me. What about the shiny spots, Betty said. Did you see those? Yes, said Barney. Well, what about them? Oh, probably something dropped on the trunk. Betty was convinced that he was simply denying all this experience to himself, and she didn't know why. Later, Barney would explain that the experience had been such a nightmare to him, so unbelievable, that he wanted desperately to put the whole thing behind him and forget it. At the moment, he was getting very irritated with Betty for persisting in her exploration. He again refused to give in when she asked him to go out with her and recheck the compass and the shiny spots, and he urged her to forget it when she insisted on following Janet's advice to call the Peace Air Force Base. All right, he finally agreed, but if you do call the Air Force Base, leave me out of it. Betty was haunted by the thought that they might have been exposed to radioactivity, but at the same time she realized that this might sound ridiculous to the officers at the Air Force Base. However, she called the Air, the Air Police at the base, and after several transfers by the switchboard, she finally found one officer who asked her for the details. She gave him the facts in a bare outline, because the officer's attitude was cynical and uncommunicative. Out of the embarrassment or shyness, she skipped the details of seeing the double row of windows, feeling that this might make her the target of further cynicism. She did, however, report the fins, apparently separating at the sides of the craft, with the two red lights on either side. The officer grew more interested in this, and when Betty explained that her husband had a better look at the part of the craft than she did, the officer asked to speak to Barney. Barney was extremely reluctant to come to the phone, but he had simmered down a little bit by now and finally agreed. He cooperated in giving out as many details as he could remember, but he sheepishly avoided mentioning the figures he had clearly observed on the craft. At one moment, the officer told Barney that he was cutting him in with another extension at the base and that the call was being monitored. Neither Barney nor Betty was anxious to be involved in a bizarre situation. While Betty felt that the attitude of the officers was one of indifference, Barney disagreed, saying that they were intensely interested, that they were at no time impatient, and that they were intrigued by the fins with red lights. To the Air Force officers, this was a new slant in the many UFO reports they had screened. The conversation on the phone made a slight change in Barney's attitude. 
From his discussion with the officer, Barney learned of other reports, some similar to his, so that he no longer felt as self-conscious about the possibility of being considered irrational in reporting something that he couldn't explain. Both refrained, however, from talking about the shiny spots on the car, and Barney still held back on revealing the figures aboard the craft behind the curved window. This, he felt, might put him in the position of being doubted, and he had had enough of his own doubts to contend with at that point. His main concern was not to appear foolish. On the next day, some of the concern in this respect was reduced when the Peace Air Force Base called back for further information. This gave Barney more confidence in himself and his own experience, but he still did not give out all the details. It was Major Paul W. Henderson of the 100th Bomb Wing at the Peace Air Base who called back the next day, and he told the Hills that he had stayed up all night working on the report and wanted a few more details. He also indicated that he might be calling back later, although after the second conversation, the Hills did not hear from him again. His official report to Project Blue Book the name of the Air Force unit at Wright-Patterson Field, Ohio, which handled the thousands of UFO sightings from over the entire country, indicated that the Hills need not have had the concern about being laughed at when they made their faltering call to the base after their experience. Here is the report with some additional commentary. Information Report Number 100-1-61 On the night of the 19th to the 20th of September, between 20.001 and 20.010, so that's 12.01 a.m. and 1 a.m. for those of you who don't speak military time, Mr. and Mrs. Hill were traveling south on Route 3 near Lincoln, New Hampshire, when they observed through the windshield of their car a strange object in the sky. They noticed it because of its shape and the intensity of its lighting as compared to the stars in the sky. The weather and the sky were clear at this time. A. Description of Object 1. Continuous bands of light, cigar-shaped at all times, despite changes in direction. Neither of the hills recalls whether they mentioned the disc shape of the craft at close range. 2. Size When first observed, it appeared to be around the size of a nickel at arm's length. Later, when it seemed to be a matter of hundreds of feet across the automobile, it would be about the size of a dinner plate held at arm's length. 3. Color only color evident was that of a band of lights when comparable to the intensity and color of the filament of an incandescent lamp. See reference to wingtip lights. Barney, who felt impelled at this time to understate everything, shied away from giving his full impression of the size of the craft. 4. Number. 1. So there was one craft. 5. Formation. None. Because one craft can't fly in formation. 6. Features or details. See number one above. During period of observation, wings seem to appear from the main body, described as V-shaped, with red lights on tips. Later, wings appeared to extend further. 7. Tail, trail, or exhaust. None observed. 8. Sound. None except as described in item D. B. Description of course of object. 1. First observed through windshield of car. Size and brightness of object compared to visible stars attracted observers' attention. 2. Angle of elevation first observed, about 45 degrees. 3. Angle of elevation at disappearance, not determinable because of inability to observe its departure from auto. 4. Flight path and maneuvers, see item D. 5. How object disappeared, 
See item D. Sixth, length of, of observation, approximately 30 minutes. C. Manner of observation. 1. Ground visual. 2. Binoculars used at times. 3. Sighting made from inside auto while moving and stopped. Observed from inside and outside of auto. D. Location and details. Here the report recounts the general details of the sighting, including the strange sound of the beeping, which the Hills described to the Air Force interrogator as sounding like someone had dropped a tuning fork. Under the pressures of the formal phone call, many details were omitted, among them being the very colored lights seen by Betty, and of course the figures Barney had observed but did not want to talk about. The report concludes, During a latter conversation with Mr. Hill, he volunteered the observation that he did not originally intend to report this incident, but inasmuch as he and his wife did in fact see this occurrence, he decided to report it. He says that on looking back, he feels that the whole thing is incredible, and he feels somewhat foolish. He just cannot believe that such a thing could or did happen. He says, on the other hand, that they both saw what they reported, and this fact gives it some degree of reliability. Information obtained herein was collected by means of a telephone conversation between the observers and the preparing individual. The reliability of the observer cannot be judged, and while his apparent honesty and seriousness appears to be valid, it cannot be judged at this time. So folks, something incredible and astonishing happened to a happily married couple on that September night 60 years ago. Lights in the sky and a blue book case file. That's about all, huh JT? Well, folks, you know damn well I wouldn't be earning my keep if that was the case. This story has legs for days, and what would you expect being a top-tier case? We're only just getting started. Next week, we'll pick it up where we left off, with the Air Force being advised, and you'll get to hear this story unfold from Betty and Barney's own mouths as well. And for Season 4, folks, I have a new quote from the iconic pipe-smoking legend of ufology himself, J. Allen Hynek. Ridicule is not a part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. I hope you've enjoyed this, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.